0: All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Help us to see you in a different way as we look at these verses, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, at least this day, your day, the things which belong unto your peace, which now they are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you that your enemies shall cast a trench around you and encompass you around and keep you on every side and shall lay, even, uh, shall you, and shall lay you even with the ground and your children with you and they shall not leave in you one stone upon another because you knew not the day of your visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast them out and, scold and that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, my father's house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priest and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive unto him. So, got a lot going on in here, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to cover all that sections, but we're going to try. We're going to just skim over a lot of it. Very first thing I want to look at, it says, and when Jesus was come near, he wept over this, and beheld the city, he wept over it. We had talked about in the last chapter, he'd been up in Mount Olivet. He's coming down into Jerusalem, he looks at Jerusalem, and he weeps. Is this the picture that you have of God, a God that loves so deeply that when he looks at the trials that are coming, that he weeps? Now, most, of, most people have this picture of God as being this mean, nasty, you know, hard person on it. But God's love is so great that he looked at Jerusalem and said, the things that are coming, to this city. Not the city as it it, it was, but the people in that city caused him to weep. And the word here for weep is loud crying. He wasn't just tearing up. He wasn't just, you know, looking on there and just shaking his head with some tears on it. He was audibly crying because of what was going to happen to Jerusalem and the people. God loves people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why do we have a difference in our relationship with God? Because we have a God of love. If you go to any other religion out there, they do not have a God that loves them. They have a God that will tolerate them if they do enough good things to please him or her, but they do not have a God that loves them. God loves us so much that he bought us. He gave us the power to come to come to him. And this is wonderful because Jesus is on the road coming down into Jerusalem and He looks at Jerusalem and he wait and it just breaks his heart. Have you ever had your heart broken when you look at somebody who's not saved or causing problems for in the kingdom and you're going, If only you really knew, if only you would listen. I've got family members that, when I think about them, it breaks my heart knowing that they have rejected God and his his salvation. And it really does hurt to love somebody that deeply. God will love people even at the white throne judgment when he's given them what they wanted, which was to send them into hell. He is still going to be loving them as he gives them what they wanted. And I, have, and I have always had this picture of God sitting on the throne in tears as he's sending people to the lake of fire for the rest of their eternal existence. And being sad because he loves them so deeply. And this is Jesus walking down to Jerusalem, looking down and he says, if you had only known the time of your visitation and it is hidden from him. Now, we're only going to just touch on this. We will be talking probably when I get done with the next book study. We're going to do a study on eschatology, and we'll deal with this a lot more. But Daniel gave a vision of 70 weeks, 69 of which were ending when Jesus came to this world. He came, and the the leaders should have been able to understand and count this. They They could have sat down and been able to count the days and said, oh, the Messiah is coming sometime within this next year or two because they knew when the decree went out and they knew that that they needed 483 years for it to to be true and they could have counted it in Jesus saying you should know but it's hidden from you why because the leaders didn't want to accept it it's very interesting how blind we can be when God speaks and very interesting we look at the end times that are coming our way and saying Jesus said that it would be like the days of Noah. Good will be called evil, evil will be called good. People were gonna blaspheme God. And you know, we look around our world today, not just our country, but our world, and what are we seeing? Everything that God says is good, the world is saying is bad. Everything God says is evil and bad, they're saying is good. Well, we don't have to go much further than just, just the whole transgender issue. God made man and woman, and, and I don't even know what it is. I'm not even going to say. Last time I looked, there were 60 or 70 different genders, but male. And I don't even know. And when my oldest son told me I'm not even on track, he said it was well over 100. Now, I can't even imagine how they're breaking down these genders, you know, to come up with this many genders. All I know is God made man and woman. That's going to get us in trouble because we're going to say God made two genders and the rest of the world's going to say, you guys are way off base. How can you not accept what we know? You know uh, and I don't know where they come up with that, but you know just that. They're telling us that marriage is bad. God created marriage. And marriage is where he expects relationships to be developed. Not with a different person every five or six years or every other day or whatever they're doing nowadays. And they're going, this is what God says? No, we don't believe it. I don't know how many of you do much witnessing, but just try to tell somebody that there's sin in the world. And they'll look at you as if you're gone crazy. And they don't understand that God has a standard and everything else that's outside of God's standard is sin. We are living in the end days. At least people used to recognize that there was activities that were bad. It, in our day and age, they're not recognizing that there are bad things. They don't even want to recognize that there is truth. Now, uh, Most everybody in this room that's uh, my age and younger, we know that you know, we went through that age where they were trying to tell us that, there is, that truth was relative, there is no absolute truth. Those who are older may not recognize this being being bombarded in schools, but it used to be bombarded in schools. We did all kinds of drills to show that there was no absolute truth. And they'd give us scenarios, you know, the lifeboat scenario, saying there's only room for so many people in this boat. Who are you going to throw overboard because there's not enough food in the boat? And why? And they didn't want the fact that God says all life is valuable. They wanted an answer on who was dispensable because there was no absolute truth and that life was valuable. We need to be able to understand that God gives us truth. The world is actively going against truth. And I've shared with you, I used to love asking people all the time, especially when I was in college the second time in the nineties, and they would say, there is no absolute truth. And I go, are you absolutely sure? And they'd look at me like I was crazy. And I'm going, you made an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. Therefore, your statement is false. You know, uh, and they're going, we don't understand. Why? Because they had never thought things through. It is very interesting to me that people will believe what they're told in school because they get, you get told to lie over and over and over and over again from an age before they're able to analytically decide anything. And it becomes true to them because they've never thought about what they were told. You know, and this is something that is very important for us as Christians. We need to challenge people when they make a statement, we need to challenge it. How many of you have ever been told the Bible is full of contradictions? Well, there's a quick answer to that question. Give me one. And they're going, well, I've just been told it's full. I go, have you read the Bible? Have you read any contradictions? Tell me one. I know the five they're gonna give us and they're not contradictions. You know, so I'm ready for them when they give me a contradiction, I'm ready to answer them. It doesn't take much to figure it out. But you know, how many of us as Christians back off when we're challenged? Do we back off or do we challenge back and say, and we can be very kind and nice. I'm not being mean to them. I'm just saying, give me one, const- one contradiction. You'd, well, there's, there's so many. I go, just give me one of them. Well, I don't know. I go, well, you've not read the book, have you? And most of them have not read the book. I go, read the book and then come back to me with your contradictions and we'll talk about them. But too many of us as Christians just back up, well, gee, maybe there are contradictions in there and I don't know where they are and I don't know how to answer them. One of the greatest things you can do is be asked a question that you don't know the answer to when you're witnessing. And you're going, well, hold it, that's what I'm afraid of. Yes, we're afraid of it, but what do we do? It's a very simple answer to them. You know what? I don't know the answer to that. Let me go find the answer and can we meet next week or tomorrow? And I'll give you the answer. But you know what you do when you go back to them? You don't just give them the answer. You also give them the gospel message again. And you hope that they ask you another question you don't know. So now you can go talk to them a third time. And when you go talk to them a third time, you hope they ask another question that you don't know. So I can now talk to them a fourth time and keep going until they actually hear the gospel message. But our problem is we are so fearful that people are gonna ask us something that we don't know. They're gonna ask us something that we cannot understand. We need to understand that we, number one, we're not God. We don't know everything. And I love that idea that I'm not God and I don't know everything. And God does not expect me to know everything when I'm talking to these people. And it shows humility and it gives us a sense to talk to them. But Jesus is saying, Jerusalem, do you know what's coming your way? You don't know what's coming your way. You don't even know that the time of the Messiah is now. We have people that aren't recognizing that the, second, the rapture and the second coming of Christ is soon. And people will say, well, you Christians have been saying that for 2,000 years. And yes, we've been saying it for 2,000 years. And he is coming sooner now than he was yesterday. And he's definitely coming sooner than he was 2,000 years ago. Because God's definition of soon is not the same as ours. He is outside of time. It doesn't matter how long he waits and it's still soon. But he is coming. We are seeing things happening in our world to tell us that he is coming soon. The evil that's coming up, all the things that are going in and the attacks on God, the attacks on his people, the fact that truth is no longer truth, the, the fact that we have a one world uh, system going on being built in. You know, how many of you remember hearing in COVID that we needed a master leader that can re- put all the world underneath him and, one, and be able to solve our problem of COVID? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that because I'm hearing one world government antichrist. The world was clamoring for a Messiah to come and rescue them. That has not happened in the past that they were looking for a worldwide deliverer. We are set up for another big calamity to all of a sudden bring the Antichrist in. Will the next one be the one? I'm not predicting that. But we are set up for a big thing to happen to bring the Antichrist in. We have a system that can be put in place to make sure that there is a one-world currency, and that you cannot buy and sell without having that currency. The banks right now can cr- turn somebody's uh, bank account on and off. The government could easily turn government uh, bank accounts on and off. So you could have millions and millions of dollars in your bank account, and the government decide, "I don't like what you believe," and they turn it off. We are sitting at the edge of the one-world system. It's there. We have computers that run everything so that the Antichrist can run everything. We are right on the cusp as the world has never before seen. Jesus told Jerusalem, you don't know what you're coming into. He could be saying the same thing to us today. You do not know where you're at, what you're coming into. We need to be keeping our eyes open and praying, Lord, come quickly. I'm looking forward to the day when he takes his church out of this world. It could be any moment, people. We're sitting right there. Any moment he could take the church from this world and the Antichrist can come, come into power. Now that would be one chaotic world to bring a one-world government into. Millions and millions of people around the world disappear. That would throw chaos into this world. And that would be a chaos that says, we need a leader. We need a leader. Jesus told Jerusalem, "You don't even know what's coming in. There is a trial coming in your way that says that you will be destroyed." He said they were going to be destroyed; that no rock would be one left upon itself. In 66 A.D., Israel rebelled against Rome, and they laid siege to Jerusalem for three, four years, and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. What did they do? They removed every stone from the stone. The temple was torn apart, the walls were torn apart, the city was torn apart. There was nothing, just as Jesus said, that it would happen. We are coming to a time of cataclysm in our country, in our world. We need to be prepared in our hearts for trials to happen. We won't live in the tribulation because we will be gone as Christians, but we will suffer tribulation and trials before that happens. We're gonna have a hard time before that happens. And we can look at what's going on in our country and look at what happened in other countries and communist countries and dictatorships and see that what's happened in those countries is happening in America. If we just open our eyes and study the history not taught in school because the schools aren't teaching us that we're, we're headed toward a dictatorship and a communist re- regime. They're teaching us all kinds of foolishness. But if we go back into history and actually study history, we see where our country's going. Why? Because it must fall. Our freedoms must fall for the Antichrist to be put into power. And for us as Christians, it means that we're gonna go under th- some trials and tribulations that every dictatorship brings to Christianity why do they bring trials and tribulations to Christianity? Because our allegiance isn't to our government, our allegiance is to God. And that works great in a democracy because I can vote and vote for my leaders and, you know, and just say, okay, while you're, in, while you're in office, I'll give you the respect and honor you deserve because God put you in place. But my allegiance is to God ultimately. Is your allegiance to God? Are you ready to stand for God no matter what happens in this world. And this is very important for us. After he gave this wonderful message that the whole of city, city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, he went to the temple, and for the second time, he cast out the traders at the temple that were trading animals and livestock and coins and kicked them out, saying that, this is, that you have made my father's house a den of thieves. He did it at the beginning of his ministry when he first went to Jerusalem and now his last visit to Jerusalem, he's doing the same thing. Can you imagine what it would have been like? You go to the temple to worship God and there's all these stalls. People doing business in church. Doing business in church. Now there's a pet peeve of mine of people who do business in church. This is not a networking zone. It's not a, you know, let me find customers for my insurance agency or my moving agency or whatever it is that I'm going to do. And that drives me crazy when people turn church into a business place. They were doing that in the temple, and it was a real simple thing. I come to give my offering to God, and I go, "Sorry, you can't give your Roman coins to God. You've got to, you've got to get temple money to give to God." And I would have to exchange my money at exorbitant rates and then I would have my temple money that I could give to God, because somehow God couldn't use real money. You know, uh, I come in with my sheep to make my sacrifice, and they would look at my sheep, which I go, it was the best one in my entire flock, it was flawless as far as I could tell, and they'd find something. See this hair right here, this patch of hair isn't perfect, so you can't give this sacrifice. You gotta, you gotta buy one of ours, and by the way, we'll take this one out of your, off your hands and they would sell you a sheep at exorbitant prices, and when you left, your sheep went back into the pen to be sold. This is what they were doing in God's house, cheating the people that were coming to worship. And the chief priest and the priest let them do this, which means there were probably a kickback going back to them if it wasn't them themselves doing it. And Jesus comes in and he chases these guys out of the temple you going, you're not making a business place out of God's house. Can you imagine what chaos that would be? These guys with their nice booze and pens and everything, tables doing all their business, and Jesus chases them out. Now this in Luke is a very abbreviated one. One of the other ones that said he flipped their tables over and he chased them out with a whip. You know, this was a chaotic scene. And I always find this amazing because Jesus does all of these things and there is a temple guard there, an armed temple guard at the temple. And Jesus gets away with chasing all these sellers out of the temple without the guard coming and arresting him. The power of God so excluded from him that nobody dared to touch him during that period of time. Have you ever been in a place where you have actually felt the power and the glory of God moving? I hope so. It's not something I've had all the time, but it is wonderful when you actually know God is in this place. It could be felt by His love, His mercy. Sometimes it's in the actual power of Him moving in a mighty way. But part of it is we need to be sensitive enough to discern his power, discern his presence. Do you know that the world discerns the presence of God many times and they don't know what it is? Have you ever had somebody get mad at you just because you walked into the room, you didn't even say anything? And they're going, oh, you're being judging me. I saw that look on your face that you didn't like what I was doing. I I feel the, the, the... dislike of what's going on. I going, I haven't done anything. I haven't said anything. I haven't even looked at you. But God's presence is in that room when you bring him into that room and they get uptight because they know that there is a presence there that they don't understand. All they know is that the holiness of God is making them feel bad. And you know, it also makes us as Christians feel bad if we're not living for Christ at the time. We get convicted sometimes just by walking into the church, when we know we're not where we're supposed to be with God. Which is why over the years I've seen it happen where somebody stops coming to church for a period of time because they don't feel comfortable coming to church. Because God's presence convicts them of their sin and they're not ready to confess their sin and repent, so they don't come. I want to tell you right now, if you get that feeling, come to church anyway. Come to church anyway, and maybe you'll get under enough conviction that you'll repent and get tight with God and be able to walk with him again. But I've seen it over and over again where people just slip out the back door because conviction gets to them. And it doesn't always mean conviction from the speaker. Sometimes it's just walking in and there's so many Christians and God's spirit around them that they get convicted just walking in the door or singing a couple songs. We need each other when we feel convicted, we need to repent, not run away from the conviction. Because I'm gonna tell you a secret, God does not stay just inside the church when you're being under conviction. And you've all been there, I know, I have been too. You get convicted at home, you get convicted in your car, you get convicted if you dare to pick up your Bible, you get convicted when the Christians do call you and say, hey, we've missed you. you know, all the little things that we do that, that convict people. Do you realize that you might have just convicted somebody because you've missed them in church and you just call them up and say, hey, I've missed you, are you okay? And they're they're not sick or they don't have a good reason. All they know is they don't want to be in church because they're convicted and all of a sudden your call convicts them. And you didn't preach to them at all. You just said, hey, we've missed you. How easy does God's spirit work on people it is an amazing thing that we can make somebody convicted without even saying anything scriptural. We're just bringing the presence of God into their, into their life. So my encouragement for us is if you're missing somebody, pray for them. Many times I'll be awakened, awakened in the middle of the night with somebody's, and somebody's name will be on my, on my mind and I just say, okay, God, I don't know why, but this person needs to be lifted up. I'm praying for them. If it's in the daytime, maybe I'll call them if I'm near a phone. I'm not always near a phone because I work at the prison. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm nearby, I'll call them and say, hey, you know, I was just thinking about you. Is there anything specific I can pray for you or help you with? You know, if every single person did that in the church, what would happen? If every time God put somebody's name on your heart, you prayed for them, that you made a, just to drop a letter or a call for them. So, you know, I was just thinking about you. God's put you on my heart. Is, is everything okay? How can I pray for you? We sang the song, they will know we are Christians by our love. Do we have love one for another? Two weeks ago in the book of Job, we were talking about how Bildad felt that he was right to judge Job because he knew Job was bad. And he decided he did not need love for Job because Job was bad and he was just going to hammer on him until he admitted that he was bad. Is that how we deal with one another in the church? I hope not though I know it does happen, but are we loving to one another and say, you know what, I've just missed you, God loves you. Do you understand the power of telling somebody that God loves them? Do you understand the power of knowing that God loves you? That there is nothing you can do that God is not going to love you. Even the people who have rejected Jesus Christ, God loves them. (laughs) And this is what we've got to fully understand. Love is very powerful when it's true, unconditional love or objective love. We love somebody just because it is what is right to do. Now that may mean that we don't like them, but we should love them. And I hope you understand the difference on that. I don't have to like everybody. There are going to be people that I don't like, but I still need to treat them with respect kindness, and love, even if I don't like them. And there are people that I know that I don't want to go out and hang out with. But I still love them. I'll still be kind with them when they're nearby. But we need to understand God loves us. He loves everybody. This love is so much. Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple. Not because he hated them, but because of his love for the Father's house, where people were supposed to be worshiping. Sometimes love does express itself in what the world would look at as a harsh way. If you talk to a lot of people they go, well, love just means you let them do whatever they want because you love them. What a bunch of baloney. Love does not let people do whatever they want. My example is, if you've got a young child, you're not going to go let them play on I-40 during the busiest part of the time on the road just because you love them and that's what they want to do. Your love is going to say, no, you're not playing on that road. No, you're not playing on Stockton Hill, in the middle of Stockton Hill Road between the hours of 12 12 and 4 and get run over. I love you too much for you to do that kind of a stupid thing. Jesus went into the temple and say, I love you all too much to allow you to be changing this into a den of thieves. Because what is happening is a lot of people don't want to come to the temple. And be cheated by the, by the leaders of the temple. They stopped coming because of what was going on. And he says, this is supposed to be a place of prayer and worship. And you've changed it. You've made it into a den of thieves. And after he made everybody excited and happy in the leadership, It says he spoke daily in the temple. He taught daily. And the people listened attentively. Except for the leaders who wanted to arrest him and couldn't find a time to arrest him because all the people were on his side. It's an amazing thing how things have not changed in, in recent years. These are not elected officials, but still they had to be sensitive to the public's opinion of them. You know, even dictators have to be careful how far they push things, because if they push it too far, the people rebel and take them out of position. Kings have always had this problem that they could be dethroned if they pushed the people too far. Jesus was so popular with the people that the leaders of the temple could not get rid of him. And they had a problem trying to figure out, what are we going to do with this guy? He doesn't, he doesn't honor our position. He doesn't allow us to cheat the people when they come in to, to worship. He's, not, he's, he's telling them that, we're, that they need to follow him. And they didn't know how to get rid of him. This, we're in the last week of Jesus at this point. He came into Jerusalem on the triumphant entry. He's going to die by the end of that week at the end of that time, and they're actively seeking to find a way to arrest him. Which is why, as you know the story, they arrest him in the middle of the night when nobody else is around. And then hold trials in the middle of the night, which was illegal by the Jewish system because they didn't want people finding out that the one they liked was on trial. Because then they would have a huge crowd at the trial and they would have to do a fair trial. All of this was going on and I just love this last section where Jesus is so bold. He did not back down in the face of adversity. He chased the money changers out and he's teaching in the temple every day. And it's an amazing thing you know, that I look at. How many people here in America where we can actually witness freely without complications, do not, win- do not witness. Jesus, the disciples, all witnessed and it cost them their life. The book of Acts is full of people that witness and and lose their life. If you've read Fox's book of martyrs, it's full of people who witnessed and gave their life for Christ because of the times they lived in. And yet, in America, we tend not to witness even though it doesn't cost us anything. Well, shouldn't say anything. It cost us our reputation but how many, and how many of us place our reputation higher than our life? And that is sad. That is sad that we're going to put my, our reputation higher than giving the gospel of Christ out. So what is our challenge for us? A couple challenges from this section. Number one, be ready for the return of Christ. He's coming soon. Could be any moment. We could be not even getting out of this church and have the church be mostly empty if not emptied. I assume, I know the testimony of almost everybody in here, and, you're, and you all claim to be Christians, so we should be have an empty church. But I'm not foolish enough to necessarily believe that it would be empty. We need to be ready for the return of Christ. Repent and turn, turn your eyes on him. And then be active in your, your sharing of God, Christ. Be bold. Be courageous to tell people about the good news. You know, what is your testimony that you have? What has God done for you? We use the word testimony, and when we, if, if we weren't in church, what would be the first thing we thought about testimony? Going to court, you know, and telling what we know. For us as Christians, that's what it should be. What do I know about what God has done? When I accepted Jesus as my Savior at age 10, my life was changed, He took away an angry, violent individual's attitude and gave me a much softer spirit. He gave me a love for the word. He gave me a love for for the church. What has he done for you? How did he change your life when he came into it? How has he touched your life? Share that with people. Share with people how you have been changed. Because nobody can argue with your testimony. It's your testimony. You lived it. If they can convince you that you didn't live through your testimony, you've got something wrong. You, know, you may not know all the theology and all the, all the rest of it, but you have this word that you can share with others. This is what Christ did. When I recognized I was a sinner and he came into my life, this is what got changed. He wants to do it for you. That's an easy testimony. What's the gospel message? We've told you over and over. The gospel message is real simple. We're all sinners. Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead. All you have to do is accept that gift. I've had many people, I didn't have time to give the gospel. Well, I think I just gave it in about a minute and a half. It's not hard to give the gospel. Now, hopefully we can expound upon it, but giving the gospel message is not a hard message. Now, will people hear it? Will people admit to it? Maybe not. But you know what, God never told us that we're responsible for what they hear and what they do with what they hear. He told us to go teach, go tell. What they do with it is up to them. What they do with truth is up to them, not, not, my, not on me at all. So we want to keep this in mind as we go forward. What will we do for Christ? Number one, be prepared. And number two, be ready to share. Lord, we ask you to be with us as we go about our day and our business. Lord, we ask that you walk with us. Lord, touch our lives and make us ready to walk with you and to teach and follow, just to share and bring you into the presence of everybody. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast to spend eternity with God we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ for all of sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord to be assured eternal life we simply talk to God admit you are a sinner and ask him for his free gift you must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.